Hebrews chapter 9, and I want to look at the first 12 verses this morning. And the title for the message is Jesus Provides Eternal Redemption. So the theme for this morning is around this word redemption. It's something Jesus gives us. It's something he provides, something he offers people. And it's redemption, and he offers it eternally. What, what is redemption? I want to take a moment and set up the passage in Hebrews by actually just looking at that word redemption. I think it'll help us understand the point of the message later on. So this message theme is about something Jesus has accomplished for his people. And it's the idea of redemption. But what is, is redemption, though? What does it mean? It is an interesting word. It's used in the Bible, both Old and New Testaments, all throughout it. It can mean what we would think of the word ransom. As in, a thing or a person is held in captivity, and it won't be released until a payment has been made. It's used for a business term. The owner of the product sets a price, and they would use terminology like, let me redeem this product off of you for the price that you've set for it. We would just say, you bought it, you purchased it for a set price. The word, in a bigger sense, though, meant to liberate a slave. There's someone that is in enslavement. They're in a bad situation, and someone else had to step in and liberate them, rescue them, pull them out of their bad situation. Oftentimes it involved the person rescuing them had to sacrifice something, give a payment. The Bible often speaks of people who are without Christ as in need of a Savior, and the reason they need a Savior is because they are enslaved. They're enslaved to sins. And the Bible will use this terminology, they need redemption, they need to be ransomed, they need redeemed. So Jesus then, in a sense, purchased us and freed us from the power of sin and Satan. He paid our debt, our sin debt, on the cross. He secured our freedom. I want to take you through just a short Bible study to see how this term redemption or ransomed is used in the Bible. I think we need to have a grasp of this so when we get to the main part in Hebrews where he talks about it, we'll know what he's talking about. So I'm not in Hebrews just yet, and if you'll just listen, I'll read you some of these passages. But in the Old Testament, the idea of redemption was common. Most frequently, it was used for how God viewed Israel, his people. He would use terminology about how I have redeemed you, I've purchased you out of slavery. In Deuteronomy 7, 8, Moses says to Israel, But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and, here's the phrase, redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. So the event in the book of Exodus where Israel was freed from slaves in Egypt, the rest of the Old Testament, God would constantly remind them, I bought you, I purchased you, I redeemed you from the house of Egypt where you were slaves. I have bought you to be my people set apart for me. In Psalm 74 too, it says, remember your congregation, and this is talking to God, remember your people Israel, which you have purchased. That's the idea again. God purchased them. You've redeemed them, a tribe to be your heritage. At times, even an individual could talk about being redeemed by God. King David said in Psalm 31, 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Again, the word redeemed and ransomed, kind of interchangeable there. 
A final one in the Old Testament comes from Micah chapter 6, verse 4. And this is God now talking to, to Israel. And they've strayed into sin is the context. And he wants to remind them of why they need to be faithful to him. God says, for I brought you up from the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron. So God constantly reminded Israel that when they fell into sin, they actually didn't have the right to do that. Not just because God hates sin and he wanted Israel to do good. They didn't have the right to sin and disobey God because God bought them. He purchased them out of slavery to Egypt. They owed it to God to obey his commands and live lives set apart for him. Now in the New Testament, it does the same thing but talks about individual people. The New Testament speaks of something Jesus did. In Matthew 20, 28, this is Jesus talking. He says, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And here's what Jesus said, what he came to do, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus said, I offer up my life on that cross. What's really happening is I'm purchasing people's freedom. I'm purchasing them out of slavery to sin, to be free to serve the living God. 1 Timothy 2.6, Paul says about Jesus, he gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Galatians 4.5 says that Christ came to redeem, there's the word again, redeem those under the law so that we might receive adoption as children of God. So redeem here is the same as ransom again, And the Bible says in the New Testament, Jesus came to purchase people out of slavery to sin. What was the purchase price he paid? His own body. He sacrificed it up on the cross. Jesus' death paid a price as a ransom, and it was the only acceptable payment, so to speak, to free people from the power of sin. It was the only way we could be redeemed and brought out of slavery and into a free relationship with God. Now notice that last verse I read in Galatians. It says that we were redeemed, we were ransomed for something. For what? To be adopted by God, our Father. So we were slaves to sin, but through Christ we're now children of God. But it took Jesus, the point I'm stressing, his act on the cross was necessary because it was an act of him paying a ransom, freeing us from slaves to sin. So those who have faith in Jesus as their Savior have been redeemed. They're no longer slaves to sin. They've been purchased with his blood and now adopted as children of God. That's the idea of redemption. That's what Hebrews is going to be talking to us today. That Jesus, what he did, it secured eternal redemption for those who believe in him. But the question then is that I want to talk through what he mentions here. How does Jesus offer eternal redemption? How can he do it? How did he make it possible in the first place? And here's the point he's going to share. He did it because when Jesus died on that cross and rose again, something spiritually was going on. Jesus entered the heavenly tabernacle as a high priest. We've been talking about that for weeks. He entered a heavenly tabernacle as a high priest. He offered his own blood as a sacrifice to pay for people's sins. And what he's going to do as we go through this passage is make another comparison. He's going to compare on the one hand an earthly tabernacle, the book of Exodus and Moses and Aaron and all that stuff, And he's going to compare it to a heavenly tabernacle. And he said that Jesus offers a far greater priesthood because he brings a better sacrifice 
He brings a better covenant, and here he says he also served in a greater tabernacle, one in heaven. He's going to compare again how Jesus is greater than something in the Old Testament. He wants us to see that the new covenant that Jesus brings is far superior to the old. The old was limited. Again, we've talked about that. It was meant to be a type of phase one to get to Christ. It wasn't meant to be the point. It was preparing people for the Messiah to come. Now that Jesus has come, he's brought the new, the new covenant. It provides better promises to God's people. God is with his people through the Holy Spirit in their heart. They are saved by the one-time offered sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that salvation is secured for all eternity. Now, Hebrews is doing this because I believe, again, the author was a pastor writing to his church congregation to encourage them. They're facing physical persecution, societal persecution, many more, we could say. These were Jews who had converted to Christ. They believed Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, so they believed and followed him, but it cost them something. Some of them had seen people who once associated with their church leave and abandon their faith in Christ. They were worried about that. What did that mean for them? Some have been holding on to their faith, but it's getting weaker. They're struggling to hang on because the world is putting so much pressure on them to abandon Christ and make life easier for themselves. It would be easier for them to say, I didn't mean what I said about Jesus, and they would go back to Judaism and be accepted back into the lives they once had. This pastor, I think he's been trying to encourage his congregation. He's been stressing over and over to show them all that Old Testament stuff to say, all that stuff you hold near and dear as Jews, Jesus is greater than that. He fulfilled it. So to follow that stuff is pointless when you should be following Christ because he's the point of all that stuff in the Old Testament. So that's why I believe he wrote this letter to encourage this church, these Christians, saying to them, press on in your faith. Don't let up. Keep going no matter what. Now, we may not face physical persecution so far yet in our country, but we may have faced some type of oppression as Christians in our society. You may have been made fun of before. You may have been tempted to hide from certain people your true faith in Christ because you're afraid of what they may think of you. You maybe have been tempted to hold back from greater service to God because maybe you're worried about could it cost you a job or a certain status that you enjoy right now? In the same way, that's kind of where they're at. And he's saying, no, don't forget all that. Because there's nothing that this world can offer you, that society can offer you, that Christ can't offer you something better and greater. So today then, the main idea is, what else has Jesus offered people? He's offered eternal redemption. No one else can offer you that kind of a deal. Only Jesus. And we'll also see then, how he did this through serving in that heavenly tabernacle in heaven. Or I said that, heavenly in heaven. Now, I want to really say this. The main point we're going to try to get to is in verses 11 and 12, but we need to work through 1 through 10 on our way there. What I'd like to do, though, is just read the section I'm wanting to get to. So in Hebrews 9, I want to read verse 11 and 12, and I'd ask you, if you can, please stand out of respect for reading God's word, and we'll just read these two verses. Hebrews 9, 11, and 12 says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's pray. Lord, thank you 
for your written word that we can know your mind, your thoughts, know how to live for you, how to please you and honor you. Thank you that we can read about such things. We'll talk about this morning about how you accomplished eternal redemption and salvation for your people. Thank you for Bruce and his team leading for the songs that they've uh, done to bring us into your throne of grace, preparing our hearts and minds now. And now I ask the Holy Spirit you'd speak through me, speak truth that people need to hear this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you, please be seated. So Hebrews chapter 9, but let's back up to verse 1. We're trying to work our way to verse 12 where he says that phrase, Jesus has secured eternal redemption. But how did he do that? How does Jesus provide eternal redemption? First, we need to see what happened in the Old Testament system before we can understand what Jesus did here. So here's the first thing to see. Let, I want to say it like this. The Old Covenant and earthly tabernacle, so the Old Covenant and the earthly tabernacle, we're going to compare earthly to heavenly, that earthly tabernacle and old system, it could only purify the body, the physical, temporarily. We'll see the comparison in a moment. Now let's look at verse 1 here. He's once again going to use an Old Testament theme to make his point. He's been doing that all throughout the letter. That's not new now. He's going to talk about the earthly tabernacle that God commanded Moses and Aaron to build and oversee. That earthly tabernacle in that old covenant system could only purify the body, not the soul, and it could only do it temporarily, not eternally. So what about this earthly tabernacle then? Look at the first two verses with me, please. And it reads like this. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. I want to draw your attention to, he says in verse 2, my translation says a tent. Yours may say tabernacle. All that word means is a holy tent. Now we're talking a big tent. So some just use the word tabernacle. Now, what God commanded Moses to do here is found in the book of Exodus chapter 26. He gave instructions for them to build this tabernacle tent. God wanted a special place where his presence could dwell, so to speak. Now, God's a spirit. He's everywhere. But in the camp of Israel, he said, I want you to build a tent and you're going to put some furniture in there, and I will sort of have my presence descend there in a cloud, a thick smoke, so that the people of Israel can see, they'll have something to look at and see that their God is among them. God is truly dwelling among his people. Exodus 25, 8-9, here's where God commands it. He says, let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell in their midst. And he says, do it exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle, and all the furniture you shall make of it. So God commanded this tabernacle to be built. It's roughly just under half the length of an American football field. So a little smaller than that. But he commanded that these curtains be built as a border around it. And it had an outer gate that led to a court in open air still. And in that court, they had the altar where the people would bring their animal sacrifices and the priest would receive them and offer them up there in the outer court. Now, the people, that's where they had to stay. They couldn't go any further. They, they could only bring their animal sacrifices or their gifts or their offerings to that outer court. Now then, there was another curtain, so to speak, and it led to the first room. That's what he references here in verse 2. He says that first section or the first room or the first tent was called the holy place. Only the priests could go into that room. 
And it had some things and some furniture in there as well. I won't read all of Exodus 26. I'm just going to kind of hit the highlights of what was going on here. So let's talk about the holy place. That's the first room in this tabernacle. Again, the common people couldn't go in there. Only the priest, the designated ministers of the Lord. And he mentions in verse 2 there was some furniture in there. He says in the first section it had the lampstand, a table, and the bread of the presence. And he says it's called the holy place. The lampstand and the table for the bread God commanded to be built. The lampstand you may have heard of, some call the menorah. It's the, got the stem in the middle and it has the seven branches coming off the side. Uh, still used by Jews today for some of their religious uh, rituals. God commanded it to be covered with gold and the candles to be lit every day on it. And then he commanded this table to be covered in gold. And on this table, they were to prepare fresh bread every day. And he called it the bread of presence. It sort of symbolized that God was presently there fellowshipping with his people every day. The priest maintained that every single day. They would go in there and keep the candles lit, the bread fresh, make sure it was clean. But then there was another curtain, a veil curtain, and it led to a secondary room. This room is called the Holy of Holies. Look at verse 3 now. He says behind the second curtain was a second section or a second part called the Most Holy Place. And it had some furniture as well. He says it had a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was the golden urn or jar holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Now in Exodus 26:33, God said, you shall hang the veil from clasp and bring the ark of the testimony there within the veil, and the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy place. And that's the point I want you to see is that second curtain, that veil separated two rooms, the holy place, and the most holy place, or the holy of holies. God wanted that second room guarded and protected by that curtain veil. Now, I told you that the priest could go into the first room, but only the high priest could go into the second room. We'll get to that in just a moment. Well, what was in the second room, the holy of holy place? He says a, a golden altar of incense was there. That's where the priest would go and, and burn the smoke and incense offering there. The Ark of the Covenant was in there. The Ark of the Covenant was this golden I don't know the right word to call it. It's, it calls it an ark, but kind of like a, a chest, maybe, covered in gold, and it had items put in it. They couldn't even touch it. They could only carry it by poles on the sides. And inside this ark, God said, put some reminders in there of what I've done for you. The first one, he said, is to put a jar of manna. God f fed Israel manna, bread, while they journeyed in the wilderness. He fed them, literally fed them. And then he said, put Aaron's staff his rod in there. And what was special about it is it had sprouted flowers. It budded. There was a group of people that rebelled against Moses and Aaron. They thought that maybe they should also be able to be like Moses and Aaron, to be priests, to go wherever they want in the tabernacle. They confronted them and said, who do you guys think you are saying that you're the only ones that speak for God? Can we not speak for God too? And God said, I tell you what, we'll prove this right here, right now. He said, take Take a staff from every leader of one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Write their name on it so they know whose staff it belonged to. Set it in the tabernacle. And overnight, when you look at them the next morning, one of them will have sprouted flowers. That is the one I've chosen to be my priest, my representative. Aaron's was the rod that budded the flowers the next day. 
So God said, take that and put it in that ark as a reminder that I provided bread for you when you had no food, and I have provided a person for you to represent you before me as your high priest. Now on this ark of the covenant, God said to also build another piece of furniture and set it on top. He calls them cherubim, and we're not sure what cherubim look like. They're an angelic type figure. But he said, build them out of pure gold, have their wings covering sort of the front of this ark. And the reason is because God said, put a seat there on top of it. He called it the mercy seat. Now, here's what was special about all of this I'm sharing with you. God said, that mercy seat is going to represent my earthly throne. God says, it's as if my presence is dwelling there in that mercy seat. And God told Moses and Aaron, when you enter that holy of holies, from that seat's where I'll talk to you. So those cherubim's wings sort of covered and veiled even that seat. I'm trying to stress how special this stuff was. I mean, this is where the presence of God is going to dwell in a unique way among the people of Israel. So, in verse 6, the priest had a job to do. He says, these preparations having been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing the ritual duties. So every day the priest went into the first room, the holy place, the lampstand, the table for the bread. Every day they ministered and served in there. But look at the next verse. He says in verse 7, but into the second room, the holy of holies, he says only the high priest goes and he only goes once a year. For he says when he goes in there, he doesn't go by himself. He brings blood from an animal sacrifice. In fact, he brings two. One to offer sins for himself and one to offer for the sins of the people. So in this second part here, he's talking about something the Old Testament refers to as the Day of Atonement. Now there was one day a year God set apart. And in Exodus 30 verse 10, God says Aaron shall make atonement once a year. Only in that special room. With the blood of a sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout all your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. You can find the whole story in Leviticus 16. I won't read all of it, but let me share with you some high points. What God commanded was in Leviticus 16 verse 3, he said, Aaron shall come into the holy place, again only one time a year, with a bull from the herd for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering. He shall put on the holy linen coat. So he had to put on special garments, special clothes. And then when he had to go in there, he had to bring a bull sacrifice. And Aaron offered this bull sacrifice up. He took the blood and literally sprinkled it around the Ark of the Covenant, the furniture there. And God said Aaron had to do that for his own sins and the sins of his household. Or else he would have been killed by the holiness of God. But because he brought that bull animal sacrifice, it was Aaron symbolically purifying those altar and things. It could be in the presence of a sinner because the blood represented that the bull had died in his place. But then he also sacrificed a goat. And God said that is for the sins of the rest of the people of Israel. So he went in once and sprinkled the blood of the bull for himself, his own sins. He went in a second time and sprinkled the blood of the goat for the sins of the people. One time a year, Aaron had to do this to bring atonement or forgiveness for his sins and the people of Israel. Now, this sounds like a bloody mess, to be honest. I've heard people say before that it sounds like God is no different than the other gods of Greek mythology or Roman mythology. 
Those people offered animal sacrifices all the time because they thought the gods were angry with them and they had to get them off their backs. And the way they did that is they would offer these animal sacrifices thinking it made them happy for a day and the gods would leave them alone. The gods of the Greeks and the Romans meddled in people's business, usually to torment them. So sacrifices were to keep them away. But the interesting is here, that's not the case at all. God set up these animal sacrifices so he could be in the presence of his people, not so he could stay away from them. Don't misread why God commanded these sacrifices. It was a sign for the people constantly to see their need to be forgiven because their sin was that awful in God's eyes. Death, God said, was the only acceptable payment for sin. But God made these sacrifices as a way for him to be able to dwell in the presence of sinful people. So in verse 8 and 9, he says, well, the Holy Spirit was communicating a message through all this. He says, by this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section still stands. Verse 9 says, which is symbolic for the present age. There's a little bit of debate here, but in verse 9, he says, that first room, the holy place, it's symbolic of our present age. Some say that the better wording is it was symbolic of their age in the Old Testament. The point is simply this. He is trying to say that what the Holy Spirit was doing was trying to convey a message to people who worshiped in the tabernacle. He was trying to show them that there's a veil that they cannot go past into that holy of holies. They can't walk into the direct presence of the Lord unless someone represents them before God and atones for their sins. And it was the high priest one time a year. Not any common person could go in there. It would kill them. That's how holy God was and how sinful we are as people. So he says there was symbolism here. Well, then he says in verse 9 that according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. They only deal with food and drink and various washings, regulations of the body imposed until the time of Reformation. Let me summarize all that to say this. Here's his point. That Old Testament stuff, that earthly tabernacle, all that stuff we just walked through that they had to do, that could never save someone's soul. It was only meant for the body. It was ritual purifications. There was dietary laws for what they could or couldn't eat, how they had to wash their hands. All of that was simply to purify the body. It was never meant to purify the soul. It couldn't. It was limited. That's not what it was meant for. It was meant simply to regulate the body. So then, he says, okay, now then, with that in mind, the old was earthly. It could only help the body, not the soul, until a time of reformation come on the scene. What's the time of reformation? When Christ come on the scene. So he's pointing out that the earthly tabernacle, the old system, could only regulate things physically. It couldn't really fully help the soul or the conscience. It was preparatory to get people ready for Jesus to come. Now he transitions then and says, okay, here's the point he wanted to make. That's the setup under the old covenant. That's how it worked for Aaron and his sons when they were high priest after him. They ministered in that way in that earthly tabernacle. It had limitations though. It was mostly meant to regulate the physical, the body. It purified the body and only temporarily. Remember, they had to offer daily sometimes these sacrifices. It couldn't save the soul for all eternity. That wasn't its design. Jesus did not come to minister in that earthly tabernacle, is his point. 
He came and ministered as a high priest in a different tabernacle, a tabernacle in heaven. And what he did there was something magnificent. So that's the next part. Let's look at verse 11. Christ's new covenant and heavenly tabernacle, it can purify the soul for all eternity. Remember, the first part was the old covenant with an earthly tabernacle, but now we have a new covenant with a heavenly tabernacle, and the old could only purify the body temporarily. The new purifies the soul eternally. So how did Jesus do this, though? In verse 11, if you look with me, he says, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. So let me pause there. He says Jesus didn't enter an earthly tabernacle like Moses and Aaron. He entered a heavenly tabernacle. He says that he entered a tabernacle not made with hands. It's not of this creation. Verse 12, he entered also a heavenly holy of holies. Remember that two rooms and the second room, only the high priest could enter one time a year. He's now is going to say Jesus entered that room, the holy of holies, but in heaven. Verse 12, he, that's Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places. So he entered that special place that only the high priest could go once for a year, but he did it in heaven. I want to draw your attention to the phrase, he says he did it once for all. That means for all time, not all people, for all time. He entered there one time, and one time when he did what we're going to talk about he did was good for all eternity. Aaron and them had to do it how often? Once a year. Year after year after year. Jesus did it once, period. That's it. His work he did was effective for all eternity. Well, what did he do? In verse 12, he goes on to say, He entered not with the blood of goats and calves like Aaron did. He entered by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Jesus entered once for all, and he didn't enter empty-handed. Remember, Aaron had to bring the blood of a bull and then the blood of a goat, offer sacrifice for sins for himself and then the sins of the people. He's drawing this parallel to say, but here's the thing. Jesus entered, and he brought a sacrifice. That's true. But he only brought one sacrifice. Why did he only bring one sacrifice? Because he had no need to offer a sacrifice for his sins. Jesus had no sin. So he only brought one sacrifice for the sins of everybody else. But he didn't bring an animal. What did he bring? His body, himself. He offered himself up. He brought his own blood into the heavenly tabernacle and used it to purify and sprinkle that furniture, so to speak, to make atonement and bring forgiveness for people's sins. What did this end up doing? I want you to see that main point at the end of verse 12. He says all of that that Jesus did, what did it accomplish? He says he secured or he obtained eternal redemption. Jesus secured, he obtained an eternal redemption. The word secure, some translations say have obtained, means Jesus accomplished something that he now can do for people. He secured an effect that he can provide for other people. And he says what he did is he accomplished something eternally. Literally, it means what it says, never ending. What he did one time Offering up himself, bringing his own blood, so to speak, into the heavenly tabernacle as a high priest, secured something for people that believe in him. And he secured it for forever, for all eternity. Again, the word is redemption. That's what he accomplished. 
That's why I wanted to walk through all that at the beginning of the message of what redemption means. It's that concept of being ransomed. You and I were slaves to sin. And the Bible uses those harsh terminology. Slaves held captive in chains. But Jesus' sacrifice purchased us out of slavery to be free, to worship God. And he says for eternity, ever and ever, he secured redemption. How did he do it? His death on the cross. When Jesus died on that cross, that was actually him being sacrificed like those animals in the Old Testament. He offered himself up as an innocent lamb, so to speak. In fact, John saw Jesus in John chapter 1, and he called out and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was slaughtered like an animal on that cross for the sins of people. The act of sacrifice that the author of Hebrews says was what made Jesus able to be our high priest and offer up that eternal redemption. So his pure, innocent, divine blood brought forgiveness for all eternity of the soul. Not just purification of the body like the Old Testament. It brought eternal salvation and forgiveness. This is how, as Christians, you can say with 100% assurance that you have your salvation for all eternity. It's secure. Why? Because of what he says Jesus just did. He offered up his own body. He went to the heavenly tabernacle and represented us as a high priest and used his own blood to provide forgiveness and atonement for our sins. He offered himself up like the bull, like the goat. I hope it's starting to come together for us why Hebrews spent so much time talking about Aaron and Melchizedek and priest and this because it comes to this point where he says, you need to know that this is what Jesus did for his people. He functioned as a high priest, sacrificing himself and secured eternal redemption. Jesus went into the heavenly holy of holies, the real tabernacle. Aaron could never go there. He could only minister in an earthly tabernacle, which was a model. It was a copy. Aaron could only offer animal sacrifices. Jesus offered himself. He's pure and innocent. He had no sins to be forgiven of. He entered the heavenly tabernacle and purified its furniture with his own blood. He offered his own blood as the basis for bringing forgiveness to people. His sacrifice brings eternal salvation, eternal redemption. Not a temporary one, an eternal one. I want to remind us all of this important fact. Why all this blood sacrifice stuff? Again, it all sounds gory. Well, again, we need to remember, it is a picture of how wicked we really are. How terrible our sin is in the sight of God. It's a picture of how holy God is. He cannot be in the presence of sin unless that sin has been paid for, or the word is atoned for. Death is the only penalty for sin. So instead of wiping out every human being for their sins, God made a way for them to have them forgiven, atoned for. But it required the death of someone, either me or you, who? His own son, Jesus he came and offered himself up and said, I'll die in their place. And in that sense, then the writer of Hebrews says, that was Jesus functioning as that high priest in heaven, making atonement for our sins. Now then, and we've talked about this weeks before, through Christ, you have direct access to God. You don't go to some priest and confess your sins or pray to a priest 
and hope that God hears those prayers through a priest or a pastor. That's not how it works. If you're in Christ, you go directly to God because he's there representing you directly before God as your priest. So because Jesus offered up himself as the pure sacrifice for sins, I and you are offered eternal salvation, eternal forgiveness of your sins, and you can be made alive in your spirit to serve God. Christian brothers and sisters, you have that if it's true about you, that you have your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Because of his sacrifice and resurrection, you have eternal redemption, eternal forgiveness. But I want to stress this this morning. Don't take your salvation for granted. Look at what it cost for us to have it. Remember, I said the word ransom means a price was paid for your freedom. What was the ransom price? It took the very divine Son of God to leave heaven and come to earth and be a human and die a criminal's death on a cross under Roman capital punishment. He rose again, though, three days later, showing he had victory even over death and can give people eternal life who believe in him. But how can he do all of this? Hebrews says it's because he was a great high priest and entered the heavenly holy of holies on your behalf and mine, offered his own blood to make purification for our sins. That act of Jesus he only had to do one time. It's that powerful, and it covers us for all eternity. Jesus went to that heavenly tabernacle, entered that holy of holies as our high priest, used his own blood, used his own body as the sacrifice for atonements. Aaron could not do that. He could only use animals, and they were limited in what they could do. Because of that great act by Jesus, he brings people back into a forgiven relationship with God. He frees you from slavery of sin to be free to serve God. So Christians, I ask you this morning, just with these thoughts, rejoice and be amazed at what great things your Jesus has done to accomplish your eternal redemption. I want to share a story from Charles Spurgeon. He's a great preacher of old, and he told a story about this theme of redemption. He says, picture that you bring to me a file full of bills that I owe. It's thick, full of bills. Every piece of paper is another bill that I owe. Bill after bill, and it's a thick file. And he said, now here's the story. So you bring it to me, and then you ask, are these bills not yours to pay? And I answer, no doubt, they are all correctly mine in every way. And they might make me many months to even go through them. I have so many bills. Then you would ask me back, well, can you pay the bills? I would answer you, no, and I don't need to try to pay them. But then you'd ask back, but does that not bother you that you owe all these bills and you can't pay them? Spurgeon said this, no, it doesn't bother me. In fact, I could take the stack of bills and use them as a pillow and lay my head on it and sleep soundly at night. He says, you would be awestruck and wonder. You would think that, I, why, how could I have such a stack of bills and not take this matter seriously? So Spurgeon goes on to say, I ask you, look at the bill, every single one of them, and then look at the bottom. See that at the bottom of every bill, there's a red mark on it. And it says, paid. But he says, who paid these debts? Did you? Spurgeon says, no, I didn't pay him. I didn't have a penny to pay these debts. I didn't contribute one rusty cent toward paying these bills. But then the guy says, but, but they're all paid. If you didn't pay them, what happened? He says, well, because he, Jesus, bore my sins in his body on the tree. He took all my debts and paid them for me. And now I'm dead to those debts 
they have no power over me. I'm dead to my sins, that's the debt. Christ suffered instead of me. I have nothing to do with them. They are gone as much as if they had never been committed at all. So think about what Spurgeon said. We owed debts we could never pay, yet it shouldn't trouble us if you are in Christ. He paid them. He paid them in full. He paid them for all eternity. If you don't know this morning, though, Jesus as your Savior, my question would be, why not? What's holding you back from having this eternal redemption? Jesus has already done it, done it all to save you from God's judgment to come. He can not only save you and forgive you, he will cause your soul to become alive to know and serve God. I would challenge each of us this morning, if you say, yes, I know Jesus, then leave here rejoicing at how he gave you that eternal redemption. It's yours and you have it. And you and I contributed nothing to get it. He did it all. If you don't know him, please know there is no other way to have your sins forgiven and atoned for. It's only through Christ. I'll pray and ask Bruce and his people to come. And we'll have a moment. Lord Jesus, thank you for this eternal redemption that you died to secure and you went into the heavenly holy of holies and sprinkled that blood in that inner room so that our sins could be pured and forgiven so we could enjoy the presence of God one day as forgiven, guilt-free people. I pray that everyone here knows that reality about them. If they don't, that Holy Spirit, you convict them to know they must have Jesus as the Savior from their sins. That death on the cross must be for them. And they must put their faith in that is the only way to be forgiven and have eternal redemption offered. Again, Jesus, all I can do is say thank you for that. We've done nothing to deserve it or contribute to it. In your son's name I pray, amen.